0: Information discussed in this podcast may be sensitive in nature to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sarah Kinslow grew up with three siblings and loving parents. Sarah and her family lived in Greenville, Texas an area of the state located just to the northeast of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. As a child, Sarah was very musical. She loved to sing, play piano, and was not shy to perform in front of an audience. In her teen years, however, Sarah hit the typical teenage rebellion streak. That rebellion escalated when she, at just 14 years old, began dating an 18-year-old an 18-year-old that had a reputation in the area for drugs and crime. Her parents weren't happy and tried to convince Sarah that she was making some bad decisions. But Sarah wasn't listening. On May 1st, 2001, Sarah's father, John, drove her to school. He took her a little earlier than usual because she told him that she had plans to meet with some of her friends before the start of the day. John dropped his daughter off at Greenville Middle School and drove off, unaware that that was the last time he would see his daughter. Sarah wouldn't come home from school, and her parents would learn that Sarah didn't even attend school that day. Sightings would come in, and controversy would arise if they were credible or not. In fact, people and sources still have conflicting information on this. But Sarah remains missing. Where is Sarah Elizabeth Kinslow? And welcome to another episode of the Where Are They podcast and another unsolved missing person case. Technically, a missing child's case, as Sarah was just 14 years old, very much a minor. Just a quick warning, this case did make my head spin a bit with conflicting reports and all of the rumors out there. So many rumors. And sure, all of these unsolved cases that we talk about have rumors, especially ones that have been unsolved as long as Sarah's, 22 years. But the rumors in this case are more than plentiful, and it makes me wonder why. Who starts these rumors? Is it an attempt to lead people in the wrong direction? Or is it simply something like the telephone game we played as kids? The more people that share the story and talk about it, it slowly... Changes over time. I do suspect it's a combination of both. Before we jump in, a big welcome to our newest Patreon members, Eve and Queen Bee. Thank you for your support of our show. You can find the links to Patreon and all of our social medias in the show notes. Please make sure you are following us over there. We share regularly on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook as well. If you are interested in a more visual look at these cases, we do have a YouTube channel as well where we can share photos and surveillance footage, if there is any, from all of the cases that we cover. Just search for the Where Are They podcast. Now, let's head to Greenville, Texas, and talk about the story of Sarah Kinslow. Sarah Elizabeth Kinslow was born June 14, 1986, to parents Louise and John. She had three siblings, and she grew up in a happy household. Sarah was known to love holidays as a child, especially Christmas. In fact, her parents recall that she was the first one up every Christmas morning, excitedly waking up everyone else in the house so they could open presents. She would even take her stocking and jump into bed with her parents unable to contain her excitement. And this is how all Christmases would be in the Kinslow household until Sarah became a teenager. Sarah was also very talented musically. She loved to sing, and she often performed solos in her church choir. At age six, Sarah began taking piano lessons and soon excelled at that as well. In March of 2000, when Sarah was just 13 years old, She competed in the American Women Composers Competition, and she would take home first place. She had a bright future ahead of her with music, but Sarah would soon lose her way. When Sarah was 14 years old and attending Greenville Middle School in Greenville, Texas, she somehow met 18-year-old Curtis Wayne Bell. And Sarah was immediately struck by him, and in March of 2001, According to Sarah's diary, they would become boyfriend, girlfriend. Suffice to say, Sarah's parents were not happy, not just because of the age difference, but Curtis was known to be a little bit of a troublemaker, and her parents feared that he dabbled in drugs and would introduce Sarah to that world. And like any parent, they wanted to protect their daughter. But it is believed. That, that is exactly what happened. Sarah's parents often argued with her about Curtis and about her behavior. She began staying out late, disobeying her curfew, and just being overall rebellious. Louise remembers one fight with her daughter where Sarah was starting to pack a bag and threatened to run away. Louise stopped her, and Sarah looked her straight in the eyes and said that she promised one day she would be gone. Louise said that gave her chills in that moment, because she could tell that Sarah meant it. The Disappearance On May 1st, 2001, John drove Sarah to school that morning. They had left a little earlier than usual because Sarah had told him that she was meeting with some friends just before school would start. John dropped her off and drove away at 7.20 a.m. Later that afternoon, Sarah didn't come home from school, and around the time her parents started to wonder about her, they received a phone call from the school. Sarah had been marked absent that day. I just covered the case of Nathaniel Holmes, and this issue came up there as well. But I think it's interesting that schools now wait until after school to call home and alert the parents that the children weren't there. They claim it's a better time to reach the parents and not have the child intercept the call. In my experiences, I've always known schools to call in the morning which in the cases of these missing children could alert parents much sooner that something is wrong, something is very wrong, and they can begin searching right away. John and Louise are alarmed, learning that their daughter didn't go to school that day, but she had been acting rebellious. They start by calling around to Sarah's friends, but no one knew where she was. Finally, one of the friends would tell John and Louise, that a group of them did have plans to skip school that day, and they were going to meet up at a local cemetery, the East Mount Cemetery. But Sarah never showed up. It was then that her parents realized they needed to contact authorities and report their daughter missing. The Search Authorities classified Sarah as a runaway, and her parents believed that was a likely scenario as well. After all, they had been having some trouble with her recently, and she had even made threats to run away. Law enforcement began by questioning the friends and Curtis, who denied knowing where Sarah was. At some point, some of these friends were even given polygraph tests, and many of them failed. But due to the unreliable nature of polygraphs, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. However, I do think it's interesting. Search dogs were also taken to the school to see if they could follow Sarah's scent, which they did for a little while anyway. They tracked her scent for two blocks from the school when they lost it. And authorities believe at that point she likely got into a vehicle. Investigators also took Sarah's diary, and it was here they learned a lot about Sarah's relationship with Curtis. She wrote about Curtis every day, talking about how much she was in love with him, and if her parents were to forbid her from being with him, they planned to run away to Mexico and get married. Curtis was questioned about this, and he said that They were really just joking around when they talked like that. It was never actually a serious plan, at least not for him. But John and Louise believed early on that Curtis knew more than he was saying. The family, not about to sit around and do nothing, begins putting up missing flyers all over their area. They concentrated on Greenville, and then they expanded out and covered areas of Quinlan, where Curtis lived and they noticed something peculiar. Within a day or two of putting up flyers in Quinlan, those flyers were taken down. Meanwhile, rumors began to circulate and people began to say terrible things about the Kinslow family, thinking that Sarah ran away because they were possibly abusive and they weren't going to do anything that could send her back there, meaning if anyone saw her, they weren't going to report it. Her family was devastated. Sarah's older brother, Jerry, during this time was in prison. The specifics aren't known as to why, nor are they really important. But Jerry said that he talked to a lot of people in prison that knew Curtis Bell, and they said he was trouble. They all said that Curtis was known for picking up younger girls and drugging them and then allowing his group of friends to do what they want with them. Immediately, John and Louise wondered if something like that could have happened to Sarah. Perhaps she accidentally overdosed and Curtis had to hide her body. The family did get the help of some missing person organizations, which did aid them with performing local searches. And there was a very important area that they would search. Curtis was from Quinlan. But rumors began to circulate that he had often taken girls back to his grandparents' property in Waco Bay on Lake Tawakanee. The Q center for missing persons came in and since Curtis's grandparents had passed away, they were able to get permission from the current owners to search that property. But nothing was found. And Louise believes that there was one area of the property that they couldn't search because it was covered in debris. But a satellite view of the property showed a strange mark in the earth in that general area. She said it was the shape of a rectangle, which Louise believes could be a grave. But for some reason, it seemed that that spot or that part of the land was inaccessible to the searchers. Shortly after Sarah's disappearance, Curtis was arrested and charged with sexual assault against a minor. Now, this was involving someone else, not in regards to Sarah. Prosecutors did want to charge him with crimes against Sarah, but without Sarah being present, they couldn't make the charges stick. Curtis would do 60 days in jail and then he would be let out on parole, but he soon violated his parole and was sent back to prison to serve a nine-year sentence. In the days... Weeks and months after Sarah's disappearance, her parents did everything they could to raise awareness and get help finding their daughter. They were successful in gaining the attention of the news media for a while, and they even went on the Montel Williams show at one point. They were not giving up. On the one-year anniversary of Sarah's disappearance, Her parents received an odd letter in the mailbox. It was handwritten, and it simply said that if they wanted answers as to the whereabouts of their daughter, they should ask Lisa St. Clair. Louise and John weren't sure who Lisa St. Clair was. They were soon able to figure it out. They went to Lisa's house and asked her what she knew. Lisa said that she had been a friend of Sarah's, but she had no idea what happened to her. She didn't know anything. Louise, doing her own little detective work, was able to figure out that Lisa was also friends with a woman named Amber. And Louise knew Amber very well. Amber had been a good friend of Sarah's. They were all in this same circle of friends, it seemed. One of the girls told Louise that Curtis and one of his friends had said they buried Sarah's body because she overdosed on drugs. She said she thinks that she had been buried in a nearby rock quarry. And that quarry was searched after this lead came in. But again, nothing was found. Louise, however, does believe that the drug overdose is a very possible theory. Sightings. Sightings would come in of Sarah, and the family jumped on every single one. Now, these sightings are officially unconfirmed. However, some media outlets have reported one or more of these sightings as being confirmed. I'm going to pass along the ones that family Believed could have some merit, or at the very least, credible sightings. Please keep in mind, it is unclear if any of these sightings are actually confirmed by law enforcement. May 1st, 2001. This is the day of Sarah's disappearance. Her father dropped her off at 7:20 a.m. that morning. Sarah is then allegedly seen near the school around 3.30 p.m. getting into an older blue Ford pickup truck. The driver of the truck is described as a Caucasian man in his 30s with brown hair and a pencil mustache. Sarah willingly got into his truck according to the witness. Unknown date. Sarah is allegedly seen at a phone booth in the nearby small town of Caddo Mills, Texas. June 2001. A reported sighting of Sarah comes in from the Mobil gas station across the street from Walmart in Greenville. Louise immediately goes to the station to review the surveillance footage, and she is certain that it is indeed Sarah, and she isn't alone. She is with Curtis Bell. At first, Curtis said it was him, but the woman he was with was not Sarah, it was someone else. But Louise adamantly believes that was her daughter on that video. Curtis then changes his story and says it wasn't him on the video after all, it was someone completely different. June 2001. Another sighting comes in of Sarah, although this one is not reported right away. A woman who knew Sarah was with her daughter in the Walmart store when she saw Sarah. She pointed her out to her daughter, who also knew Sarah, and her daughter agreed. That person that they were looking at was definitely Sarah Kinslow. The woman immediately pulled out her phone and wanted to call in the tip, but her daughter stopped her and said that friends claimed that Sarah had left an abusive home and that some of her family members actually did know where she was and that she was okay. This lady, believing her daughter, decided not to call the tip in right away, although her conscience later got to her and she called Louise to tell her what she saw. This was around the same time as the sighting in the Exxon gas station, which was right across the street from Walmart. So right away, Louise believes the lady did see Sarah. Sarah was also seen getting into an older blue Ford pickup truck at this Walmart with a young teen boy, possibly around 13 to 14, and an older man, possibly the boy's father. At least that's what the woman thought. Louise does believe this to be a credible sighting. July 2001. A family friend claims to have seen Sarah in a vehicle in Quinlan, Texas. This family friend had known Sarah since she was a very little girl, and Louise and John said that she would absolutely know Sarah if she saw her. And they said they saw Sarah in a car, an older brown 70s type of car. They were able to get the license plate number and said once the people in the car saw them looking at them, the car immediately changed lanes and sped off. Authorities were able to trace that license plate number to an owner, but the man claimed to have no idea who Sarah was. And it's possible he was telling the truth because the car had actually been transferred to several different owners in the few months leading up to this sighting. Greenville, Texas Sarah vanished from Greenville, Texas, but her case also takes us to Quinlan, Texas and Waco Bay, Texas. Greenville has a population of around 25,000 residents and is located about 50 miles to the northeast of Dallas, Texas. Greenville is the capital of Hunt County. Sarah was last seen by her parents when she was dropped off at Greenville Middle School. She was supposedly meeting her friends, unbeknownst to her parents, at the East Mount Cemetery, which is about a mile and a half from the school. Curtis Bell was from Quinlan, Texas. Quinlan is 20 miles south of Greenville and is known as the Greater Lake Tawakonee Area. Quinlan is a very small town, with the population being around 1,300 residents. Curtis also had grandparents that lived in a lake neighborhood near Waco Bay. Waco Bay is also part of the greater Lake Tawakani area as well. And it's pretty rural there, very spread out. And it is an area that is known for drug activity, likely because of the remote nature of that area. In fact, that area is ranked with an 89% for crime in the state of Texas, meaning that it is more dangerous than. of other Texas cities and towns. Lake Tewaconee is also a very large lake itself, covering over 38,000 acres. And while some areas of the lake might have a not-so-good reputation, Lake Tewaconee is also a popular recreation lake, with Lake Tewaconee State Park bringing in visitors for fishing, swimming, and all sorts of water activities. Many people, including Sarah's family, believes that she may have been alive for a while. But since sightings all but stopped after 2001, and it's been so many years that by now she is likely deceased. And the area of focus continues to be Lake Tehuacanee and the Waco Bay area. But we have to keep in mind, Without any evidence pointing us directly to any specific location, Sarah Kinslow could almost be anywhere. So what do you think happened to Sarah Kinslow back in 2001? Did she run away? Could she be alive now and living somewhere far from Greenville and far from people that would recognize her? Sarah is described as a Caucasian girl 14 years old when she was last seen in 2001. She had shoulder-length blonde hair and blue eyes. She stood 5 foot 4 inches tall and weighed around 100 pounds back when she was last seen in May of 2001. Sarah has a tattoo of the letter L on the inside of her ankle, two chickenpox scars to the left of her nostrils, an additional chickenpox scar on her left temple. Her teeth are crooked. The two upper front ones overlap each other just slightly and her ears have multiple piercings. She also has a mole on the right side of her neck near her collarbone. Her missing person notes on the Charlie project point out that she may have grown taller since her disappearance. Remember she was only 14. She may also have dyed her hair another color possibly brown, and or cut it short. Anyone with any information on the whereabouts of Sarah Kinslow is asked to contact the Greenville Police Department at 903-457-2900. Keep in mind, Sarah was just 14 when she disappeared, and she would today be 36 years old. Thank you so much for listening to Sarah's story today. She has been missing for 22 years and her family to this day still hopes for answers. Please continue to share her story any way you can. Someone out there has to know something. A reminder to give us a follow over on the socials. If anything new pops up on our case, we will post it over there first. If you do have a case suggestion for us or any feedback, please send me an email to canwefindthem at gmail.com or send a message on social media anytime. If you are interested in supporting our mission further, please join us over on Patreon for some bonus episodes. You can also help us greatly by leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. We want the names of these missing persons to be known. We need their stories to be heard. Thank you again for listening to Sarah's baffling and sometimes confusing story. We will be back again very soon with another unsolved missing person case. And until then, stay safe and hug your loved ones.